0: beginning this series called Making Sense of the Bible based on a book of the same title by a pastor named Adam Hamilton and we have six week connect groups, there are two, one on Wednesday, one on Thursday and you can sign up for either one and we're going to discuss this book together and then all the sermons are going to coincide with the reading and with the connect group um, discussion as well and this series is all about understanding what is the Bible and how do we interpret it and so that's where we're headed uh, in this series, let's watch this quick promo video. Mark Twain once said, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that really trouble me. It's all the things in the Bible that I do understand. That's what really troubles me. There are a significant number of people who, when they read it, are just troubled by what they find. And the Bible, which was meant to draw people to God, actually becomes a barrier for many people. It's not a lack of faith that leads us to wrestle with the Bible. It's because we have faith that when we find something that seems inconsistent with the character of God, that we wrestle with that. I hope when people are done reading this book, that they have an appreciation for the historical context, the culture of scripture, how the Bible was put together, um, who wrote it, why they wrote it, and and then uh, how to make sense of its troubling passages so that they can read the Bible and they can hear God speaking through it. Do you think it's fair to say that um, in our culture, when the Bible is quoted when it's referred to, if there are laws that are supposedly based on the Bible, if you're watching cable news, God forbid, if that you're doing that to yourself, but you're, you're watching cable news and you're seeing people argue over some hot, hot button issue and the Bible comes up, do you think it's fair to say that oftentimes when the Bible comes up like that, it is used as a weapon? Has that been your experience? It seems to be that in our culture, the Bible, when it is quoted, is often used as a weapon these days. In the divided culture that we live in, uh, of course, there are lots of people who feel apathetic towards the Bible and wonder, you know, why, it's an, it's, is it an archaic book? Why would we be talking about this? Religion seems passe to some. Um, is, is this something that would even affect my life? Why would I care? What the Bible says, they, they you know, hear a series about making sense of the Bible, or making sense of the Old Testament, and it just sounds like sleepy time with Pastor Ryan, why would I be interested in that? So there's the weaponized use of the Bible, there is apathy uh, toward the Bible, and then at the same time, there are however many millions of people in our culture that still have some respect for the Bible. They, they respect its place in history, or they have some respect for religious tradition. Some do, some don't. And there are lots of people in churches who would say things about the Bible. They would make claims about it, maybe about what they believe about it, what it says, and, and they vote based on what it says, or, and, and they say all kinds of things about it, but maybe they haven't actually read it. And so there are lots of, of uh, postures in 21st century America regarding the Bible. When I uh, was in college, I was a tutor, it was a Christian college, I was a tutor for the Gen Ed required Bible class that every student had to take. Are you glad that you did not go to that college that I went to? There was a a Gen Ed required class that every student had to take when they came in, and it was called History and Faith of the Biblical Communities, and it was often at 8 a.m., so uh, maybe not the best timing for that class with a, with a title like that as well. But these kids came in, and lots of them were church kids. They grew up in church with their parents. They went to Sunday school all their lives, and, and they thought they knew the Bible. And they would, they would make all kinds of claims about the Bible. They might even use the Bible as a weapon from time to time. And then they got into this class, and it turned out that my tutoring sessions were really big because these church kids who grew up in Sunday school, got to a college-level class about reading the Bible for what it actually says in, in its historical context. And these kids found out that, you know, mom and dad are going to see that I'm getting a D in Bible class. And, and so they needed a tutor. These church kids who had grown up all their lives hearing sermons about the Bible and for them, their families were probably a part of the culture war, quoting the Bible and using the Bible as a weapon, and they got to class and or got to college and figured out they didn't really know it. So regardless of what people think about the Bible, the Bible does affect our everyday lives. Think of hot-button issues in the United States. We live in a very divided time right now. I was talking with somebody today about politics and faith and, and, and the times we live in. Think about the hot button issues. When Americans discuss abortion, does the Bible enter into that conversation? Definitely, doesn't it? When Americans discuss same-sex relationships, does the Bible enter into that con- conversation? Right? Uh, when Americans discuss the death penalty, does the Bible factor in? Sure. When Americans discuss social programs for the poor, does the Bible factor into that conversation? Often does. When when Americans discuss the role of women in society, does the Bible factor into that? If you don't know, the answer is yes, it definitely does. Uh, Are you aware that when Americans discuss foreign policy in the Middle East and where your tax dollars go, the Bible has a massive effect on that? Are you aware of that? On American foreign policy even. So even for those who are apathetic about the Bible, it turns out that the Bible is still a massive influence on our culture. All right, so um, it can be it can be used as a weapon. It can be misquoted. It can be misunderstood, even by people who claim that they know it and love it. So one of the points that we want to make in this series is that thinking, intelligent, compassionate, culturally aware people who use iPhones and listen to TED Talks and drink lattes can take the Bible seriously. That there are there are thinking smart people. And this is, this, is, this is a statement that, is, that would get a lot of pushback in 21st century America. I'm fully aware of that. But there are thinking, compassionate, culturally aware people, 21st century people, who can take the Bible seriously. That's, that's the case that I'm going to try to make in this series. And that's where we're headed, especially today. When we talk about making sense of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, think about some of the ideas that you have about, the Old Testament. Does it seem like God is violent or more violent in the Old Testament than in the New Testament? Have you, who would who would be willing to raise your hand and say, "Yeah, I kind of have that that view." And so I read the Old Testament. And there's this view of God, and, I'm, and then I read the New Testament. And think, you know, did God take up meditation in between the two? You know, as God, I'm going to declutter my life. I'm going to get rid of the violence. And you know, what what exactly happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament? And, and there, that's kind of a simplistic view, and a lot of pastors are responsible for that, but we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And then questions like, is the Bible anti-science? We did a series a couple of months ago about that, but that comes from the Old Testament. Why does God seem violent at times in the Bible? Uh, what is the role of women? Uh, what is the role of other religions in the world? How does God view people in same-sex relationships? Um, And then is the Bible some kind of a guide to the end times? That comes from the Old Testament as well, in in addition to the New Testament. And so how do we make sense of of these questions that we have? About 10 years ago, I was pastoring a church in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, go Bucks, by the way. You get like no love here for saying that. But in Columbus, like people be roaring right now. And so uh, pastoring this church in Columbus, Ohio, and we challenged everybody in the church to read through the Bible in a year. And published this little reading plan. It was like five minutes a day. Actually, you do it pretty quickly. And and some people took us up on the challenge. And maybe a, you know a month went by, and this uh, this thoughtful gentleman, middle aged guy, um, came to my uh, came to my office one day. And uh, he's like, hey, hey, took you up on the challenge. Been reading the Bible, and and I said, Well, where are you right now, man? And he's like, Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, and of course, one of the first five books of the, of, the, of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Torah. And so that means, by the way, he made it through the begats, like the genealogy. He made it even through it's like literary biblical quicksand. Like people, they have good intentions and they start to read the Bible and they get into the begats and it's just like sinking and they just disappear forever and give up. He made it through the begats. He made it through some law codes that were, that were pretty, pretty thick and you know, dense material. And he got to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And he said, man, I've been doing great. And he's like, I got to the scripture, and he's, and he's essentially like, um, yeah, this is crazy what I just read. And I didn't know this was in the Bible. He's like, I've been in church my whole life. I didn't know this was in the Bible. I'm like, well, show me the passage that you're talking about. And it was this one. It's on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 7. God commands the people to go into the promised land. And he says, "When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and drives out before you many nations—the Hittites, Gergesites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites—seven nations larger and stronger than you—and when the Lord your God has delivered you, them over to you, and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them. Say it with me: totally, make no treaty with them. And just, just for effect." Let's read that last phrase together. And show them no mercy. I, can't, I probably can't totally repeat what the guy actually said to me in the office. He's like, what, what is going on? This is in the Bible? What is this, man? And I, I commended him. First of all, you made it this far. And I said, you know, that's a question that a lot of church-going people are afraid to, to ask. How do we make sense? of passages like this. so when it comes to the Old Testament, this is, for those who know, this is kind of the view that they have. What do we do? We've said that thinking compassionate people, smart people, can take the Bible seriously. Well, how? How then? With passages like this. Now, it's a good thing he hadn't got to chapter 20 yet, because there's more. It's going to be on the screen. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace, if they accept and open their gates, you just make them slaves. They'll just, get, they'll just be in forced slavery then. If they refuse to make peace, verse 13, when the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. But the women and children and livestock, you may take those as plunder for yourselves. That's in the Bible. Verse 15, this is how you to treat all the cities that are distanced from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. Verse 17, if, if we have that, yeah. Completely destroy them. And he lists all those people. Because they've done detestable things. They worship other gods. So they follow a different religion. So what are we going to do? We're going to kill them all. It's a really good thing he hadn't got to Joshua chapter 6 yet. Because there's more. Verse 21. They devoted the city to the Lord. And destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. And the word devoted, they burned it as an offering to God. So as the smoke rose, it was an offering to their God. Joshua 11, verse 20, you see at the bottom of the screen, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses. So what's, what's the word that would describe this behavior? It starts with a geno. Genocide. This is genocide. And it, it's a shock to lots of church-going Christians in Chandler, Arizona, that the first instance of holy war, of jihad, is not found in the Quran. It's found in our Bible. And... And so for, for thinking Christians who are willing to take this seriously, this presents all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Right. And we're going to answer those next week. Okay, amen, bye-bye. <laughs> and so this is the kind of material that we're dealing with in this series. What do we do with this? So, I just want to go through some basic information about the Old Testament and get a little understanding about what it is and if that will help us make sense of some of the things that we read. So let's fly through some information here. There are 39 books in the Protestant Old Testament. Uh, the books of Jewish Bibles are numbered a little bit differently, but it's, it's the same content. The Catholic Old Testament contains seven extra books. Does anybody know what they're called? The Apocry- Apocrypha. The Orthodox and Ethiopian Old Testaments also contain a different number of books, but 39 in the uh, Protestant Old Testament. There are three parts of the Old Testament. You see them there. The Torah, the first five books, um, Torah is kind of means something like teaching or path or law, it could mean. Law is a little bit of a mechanical term. It can also mean teaching or path. It's also called the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. And then we have the Navim, which are the prophets. And then we have the Kethuvim, which are the writings. So th- three categories of literature in the Old Testament, Torah, Nebim, uh, te- and Kethuvim, or Kethuvim. Um, the Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible, as we mentioned. It's also called the Tanakh. It was the Bible for Jesus, Peter, Paul, and all of the earliest Christians. It wasn't in its final form until about their era, actually, but they didn't have an official New Testament until a few centuries after Jesus. So when Jesus refers to Scripture, this is what he refers to, the Hebrew Scripture of the Old Testament. It was originally written on scrolls, which are animal skins. In various locations in the Middle East, over a 1,000-year period. The Old Testament was compiled in its final form by approximately 150, 160 years before Jesus, and it was translated from Hebrew into Greek uh, approximately 150 years before Jesus, and that's called the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. There were no books, period, until about 100 AD when there was this new technological innovation called a codex, and some Steve Jobs of that era came along and, and decided, this is, a, this is a shelf of scrolls, that you could cut scrolls up into pieces and you could bind them on one side. And and you could make a, what we would call a book, but it was called a codex, and it made the scrolls portable. And it also, if you think about just the what the visual, physical representation of the Bible, how that can affect the way we think about it, you know, we have... Uh, it, how I grew up in, in uh, the kind of church I grew up in, um, the pastors would encourage kids to take their Bibles to school so they could witness to their friends. And so you would take your Bible to school, or, or somebody would be encouraged to take their Bible and lay it on their desk. And everybody around you will know you're a Christian, and you can witness if you lay your Bible on your desk. That's hard to do if your Bible is like 50 scrolls weighing 800 pounds. But because of this new innovation, you can bind them all together in a book, And then, of course, when when the Old Testament just existed in scroll form, not all scrolls in our current Old Testament were in one location. You, You might have the books of Moses over here. You might have a couple of prophets over here in this city, in this synagogue. You understand a place of learning at that time. You might have part of the writings over here. So you wouldn't necessarily have an entire Old Testament or an entire Bible in one location. How would that influence the way somebody thinks about the Bible, if all the books are not even in the same location. So you can kind of see how when, when some folks have an idea that, that um, the Bible is essentially dictated by God, and it's almost as though they worship the Bible, and I love the Bible, that's why we're doing a series on the Bible, but you know what I'm talking about, where there are folks who almost seem like they worship the Bible. That's, that's affected by how it's put together, isn't it, when, it, when it's between two covers, And bound on one side versus if there were scrolls in different cities around the country. Does that make sense? Even the physical uh, organization of the Bible affects our view of it. And so the codex came around about 100 AD. The uh, Old Testament is written in uh, more than one language. Largely in Hebrew. This is in Hebrew that you see on the screen. Hebrew reads right to left. This is actually Joshua chapter 1. So if a person said um, they, want to, uh, they want to read the most reliable translation of the Bible, here it is, the original. This is what Hebrew looks like. And when, when we see this kind of writing, again, there are folks who would, who would kind of feel like you know, the, God dictated the Bible and they, and they want to put the Bible on, on their desk at work, which is a great thing, that's fine. And they kind of feel like this familiarity, like the Bible is easy to interpret. Like they, I, I just read it and do what it says. But well, when you see its original form, that kind of brings a little pause, doesn't it? Well, wait a second. We're reading a translation. And this is foreign to me. This wasn't written in 21st century America to fit a certain view of the world or a certain you know, political agenda or that kind of a thing. It's, there's some distance here between me and this text. Uh, it's written largely in Hebrew with some Aramaic, the book of Daniel, in the Old Testament, it was written in Hebrew from, chapters, from chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 4, and then it switches to Aramaic in chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 7, verse 28, and then back to Hebrew from chapter 7, verse 28 to the end of chapter 12, verse 13. So Daniel is actually written in two different languages. Now, but So if we're looking at scrolls that are written in different places at different times, over a 1,000-year period, and they're, they exist in different places until they're compiled over time, and there's a new technological innovation that binds them you know, between two covers. It's much easier, I think, for us to realize, something that sounds pretty, pretty simple to us, but gets lost uh, to a lot of people who, who are Christians, is that the Old Testament is a conversation in which all of the statements don't necessarily agree with each other. There are different languages, different views, people living in different times, different places. And somehow, and I would affirm that somehow God inspired the writing of this. I would affirm that by faith. I can't really make much of a scientific case for that. But I would say that, yeah, I believe God inspired the writing somehow, but we also have to acknowledge that if something is written, if, if different books are written over a thousand year period in different places, then it's not surprising that there would be different views about different subjects, is it? And so if you think about our time, something that was written in, in uh, Spanish in the year um, 1019, would you expect that author to maybe have a different view of things than somebody writing in English in 2019? Wouldn't that just make perfect sense? And that's what we see in the Old Testament. But it's, it's difficult for, for some sincere people who love God and love the Bible and they want to follow Jesus, it's difficult to say that out loud or difficult to give yourself permission to think that because of what we'll talk about more next week, but the inspiration of the Bible that Many of us are taught, you know, in in, in in churches that we grow up in, that essentially God dictated the Bible to the biblical authors. Now, nobody would actually say that, but but if we believe, or if as though as some teach, every word comes from God, and there can't be any disagreement when we, when we read. If we read something and it appears to contradict something else, then we have to harmonize those two things. If we believe that about the Bible then it becomes something that's threatening to your faith to make a simple statement like, hey, if they're written over a thousand years in different places, different times, different languages, they're probably going to see things differently. That, that becomes a controversial statement. And so there are folks who feel like, and, and they're pressured to feel this way. There's a lot of guilt associated with this and being on the right side. If you, if, they're, they're taught that if you want to be on team God, you have to have this view. And if you don't, then you're forsaking God. This view that essentially God dictated the words of Scripture. And then you find yourself trying to jump through hoops and, 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 and downplay any diversity within the Scripture and, and harmonize anything that seems to contradict. It's a photo I took a few years ago. I was driving on Riggs Road down where I live and saw a guy on a motorcycle here. It's, you should see it. It's a blurry photo. You're not going to be able to see it very well, but I promise. On the back of his bike... There's a Confederate flag hanging off the back. And then there's a a little American flag up on top. And next to that is an Israeli flag. So he's riding his motorcycle along and he has an Israeli flag, an American flag, and a Confederate flag. And I wonder if anybody ever told that guy, hey man, those things contradict. A Confederate flag and an American flag and an Israeli flag, that's just interesting. I mean, that that would be like an interesting cup of coffee, wouldn't it? To talk to that guy? But that it's, a, it's a picture of contradiction where in his world I'm guessing there is some rationale some cultural belief, some pressure that would cause him to think that those things do not contradict each other. He comes from some culture that somehow unites those things that nobody else would see as united and there are lots of people who feel that way about the Bible, and because of that, there are people who love God, and they love the Bible, and they want to follow Jesus, and they're good-hearted people, and I believe this. They're, they're not my enemy. I, I, I love folks that, that I'm talking about here, and I wish the best for them, but there are people who read the Bible, and, and definitely the Old Testament. And they find themselves arguing in favor of views of people, ways of treating people, ways of viewing the world that can be very hurtful to other people. They find themselves having to defend genocide. Well, God, you know, he didn't want them to worship other gods, so so he had all the kids killed. And, and you... When you're in that environment, you just you just paint yourself into a corner, you're pressured to paint yourself into a corner, or you see two people who love each other, and they want to make a commitment like a lifelong commitment, and you say, "Oh well, that verse says this," and these people have good intentions but they, but like this gentleman, somehow they have been taught that that everything that Seemingly, seemingly contradicts or the diversity of voices or the fact that it's written over a thousand year period in different cultures well you have to downplay all that and I have to make contradictory messages harmonize and I have to stand for this thing that my church, my culture tells me to stand for and I'm in this side of the culture war and, and they find themselves possibly doing more harm than good and that's the, that's the situation we find ourselves in, isn't it? where lots of people see religion in America and they're just like, no thanks. I don't need to be a part of, a, of, an, of an organized system that refuses to see diversity in the Bible and uses it as a weapon and, and causes all kinds of pain. Richard Rohr writes in Everything Belongs, it religion has not tended to create seekers or searchers, has not tended to create honest, humble people who trust that God is always beyond them, we aren't focused on the great mystery, rather religion has tended to create people who think they have God in their pockets, people with quick, easy, glib answers. That's why so much of the West is understandably abandoning religion. People know the great mystery cannot be that simple and facile. He's saying that there seems to be this, this realization among just the general population who might even be fascinated, who might be interested in the Bible, that the Bible gets used in a way that downplays any diversity, any parts that might make it interesting, and is used as a weapon, and it's made overly simple, and it's used in a way to harm people, and I just don't want to have anything to do with that. So otherwise, thinking intelligent, compassionate people who might be interested, get turned off by, su- by such you know, loud, dominating voices in a view that downplays the fact that the Bible doesn't speak in one way on every issue. And lots of people want nothing to do with that. And at the same time, uh, even those of us who are interested in following Jesus, and we are interested in what the Bible has to say, at the same time, it's easy for us, to focus on the harm, on the bad religion, and there are lots of examples of it, and then we can forget what's good about our own tradition. I have an uncle, I've shared this story before, um, who I guess he would profess to be an atheist, and we've had some good conversations over the years, and I said to him one time, just being honest with him, I said, you know, sometimes I wonder if religion does more harm than good. I was a pastor at the time, you know, when I said that, and that's something that I've asked myself, over the years, does religion do more harm than good? Because there definitely is a type of religion that does more harm than good. That's easy to see. And I expected him to kind of go along with the cultural zeitgeist and, and just kind of repeat the memes and say, Psh, yeah, right? I mean, all the religious wars and the division and all this kind of stuff. And I expected him to just kind of go along with that. He, he, he surprised me. So I'm like, yeah, sometimes I wonder if religion does more harm than good and harm than good. And he's like, well, he's like, come on, man. That was his reaction. He's like, come on. He's like, they're obvious examples of harm. You, you, know, you don't have to look very far. But he's like, most hospitals were started by religious people. Most universities were started by religious, peoples, religious people. Charities in the world, you can't, go, you can't be involved in a charity on planet Earth without bumping into people who are religious. Uh, we're just beginning to you know, form a partnership with Matthew's Crossing Food Bank you know, in North Chandler. That was started by church, like most food banks. In Muslim countries, they're started by devout Muslims who believe that God cares for people and wants to, wants to be compassionate to people. He's like, come on, you can't, you can't ignore all of the good that has been brought by religion or by spirituality. And, and if you get sick here in this area, you can go to Mercy Gilbert. It was started by Catholics. Or you can go to St. Luke's or St. Joseph's or Good Samaritan Hospital. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Oxford all started as seminaries. And so... Ivy League schools were started by Christians. Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, Gregor Mendel were Christians. You get the idea? And so it's easy for us to fall into the, the cultural zeitgeist that religion is just bad and, and not see the good in our own religion. We can acknowledge for sure there is definitely a type of religion that does more harm than good, but there's, there's something beyond that as well. And that is, in all of the Bible... Old Testament and New Testament, but it's certainly in the Old Testament. Many Old Testament laws, and what we view as something archaic in our time, were actually progressive and gracious for their time. And the prophets proclaimed justice. So we've given the example before, the law of an eye, eye for an eye, which today would be barbaric. It would be, of course, a barbaric punishment that would be cruel and unusual, and we wouldn't want to have any part of that. But in its time, this law, an eye for an eye, lex talionis, actually limited violence. 2000 B.C. in the Middle East, in a very different time than we live in. If, if two people got in a fight and somebody lost an eye, they didn't listen to the mom and they shot the BB gun and they lost an eye, and, and then the person who loses his eye gets so angry, he's like, I'm going to kill you and he starts attacking the guy, and he beats the guy within an inch of his life. No, that's, that's illegal. We don't do that. Here, here's what you're allowed to do. He took your eye, you take his. That's it. Not a leg, not an arm. Can't kill him. He damaged your eye, you damage his eye. Actually limited the, the violent response provoked out of anger. And so an eye for an eye, which would be barbaric in our time, was something that was actually a leap forward in the society that uh, it was introduced in. In the same way, the Old Testament is full, absolutely full, of God's grace. From Genesis, and, and God, if you remember back in the Genesis series we did, when Adam and Eve, and this is a story, we don't believe it's a science textbook, we believe it's like holding up a mirror to human beings. When you read about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve realize they're naked, and they felt shame, and they hide from God. They, they're, they're scared of God. They feel guilty. And, and again, it's not, it's not meant to make kids argue with their science teacher. It's meant to teach us some, something about relationships and what happens when we know we do something that's wrong. And how do we deal with our own guilt and shame? And Adam and Eve hide from God. And Adam or, or God comes walking in the garden and looking for them. And he's like, Adam, where are you? As though God doesn't know. Adam, where are you? And what does Adam say to God if you remember that series? I was afraid because I realized I was naked, so I hid. And we realize it's not about science, but it's about what happens in a marriage. It's about what happens between two people who just are friends, office politics, sibling rivalry, parents and children, friendships that get broken apart. I, I was afraid and I, I was ashamed. And so I hid. And that that shame and that fear and that hiding breaks relationship and God comes and he restores that relationship with Adam and Eve. Things are not the same after that, but that's that's a gracious act. The Old Testament prophets proclaim justice. Every social justice movement in in the United States is rooted in scriptures like what Martin Luther King Jr. quoted in the I Have a Dream speech from Amos 5, chapter twenty Chapter 5, verse 24, but let justice roll like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream or roll like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. When Martin Luther King was making an appeal to Americans that the, that the African-American community had been written a bad check, he quoted Amos. It comes from the Old Testament. Or Isaiah chapter 1, when, when the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, opens up the book by saying you, you guys are so religious and, and you check all the religion boxes and you believe all kinds, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but you get the idea. You believe all kinds of things about the Bible and you think you're better than other people and you judge them and you're exclusivist and you're separatist and you think you're pleasing God. Listen, God has no interest in your, your overly religious practices and the, and, the, and the shows that you put on of your religious piety. Here's what, here's what God wants. This is, this is 700, 800 years before Jesus. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. These are people in Middle Eastern society who are the most vulnerable. You go to church. You carry around a big black Bible. You, you do all the things that good Christian people are supposed to do. Here's what God wants. He wants you to defend the people who are most vulnerable in your society. That comes from Isaiah. That comes from the Old Testament. This is the scripture that Jesus was quoting when he talked about justice and loving your neighbor. And so perhaps we can say this about the Old Testament and the Bible as we seek to understand it as we begin this series. Perhaps religion looks a lot like human beings with all of our good ideas and our bad ones. And perhaps still, as we see in the Old Testament, God is continuing to call us forward. No, an eye for an eye was a major step forward. You can only take an eye. But we're, that's not where we are. So how is God calling us forward? And so for my Jewish friends like Rabbi Shmuley up in Scottsdale, who's one of the best human beings I know, who is concerned about pleading the case of the fatherless and the widow and, and Defending the most vulnerable in society. He is inspired by the scripture. To him, God is not a mean, violent God, but God is a God of, of justice and righteousness and wants to do the right thing by everybody. Now, how can he do that? Because the Old Testament speaks from a multitude of voices. People, I believe God was inspiring, but people who are trying to figure it out, human beings trying to relate to the Spirit of God, working in their lives and their, and their cultures, trying to figure out, and perhaps God was pulling them forward. Perhaps there is actually a, a, a benevolent spiritual force in the universe. Maybe, maybe you would disagree with me, but perhaps there is pulling them forward. And as they struggle to understand it, what we're reading is not God's thesis paper. This is my Bible that I'm using as a gesture, by the way. It's a prop. Um, it's not God's thesis paper. Dropped out of heaven, dictated by God. But it's the Spirit of God working with human beings, calling us forward to create something better. Perhaps that's what we're reading when we read the Old Testament and the New Testament. And finally, we'll wrap it up with this. As Christians, as people who want to follow Jesus, we interpret the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. It's called the Christocentric interpretation. We're not biblicans, followers of the Bible. We're Christians. We're followers of Christ. And so we interpret everything through the lens of Jesus, as though Jesus is a pair of glasses that we're reading, as we read anything in, in Scripture, Old Testament or New, uh, New Testament. There's a, a book, if you can just believe the title, called Show Them No Mercy, Four Views on God and the Canaanite Genocide, that we read about in Deuteronomy and Joshua. And there are four theologians who argue from their own theological tr- traditions about how we interpret this passage. One of them, at least, is like, yeah, God, called, God commanded him to commit genocide, deal with it. Like, that's his, that's his view. And, and, and we live in 21st century America where people fly airplanes into buildings. And, and there are terrorists who want to kill people in the name of God. And he's going to have a very difficult time probably defending his view of the Bible in the world that we live in. But there's a, a Nazarene, a church of the Nazarene scholar named Tom Noble Uh, who taught at Nazarene Theological Seminary, and I actually have gotten to meet Tom Noble. Actually, this is back around 9-11 in 2001. I lived in Kansas City. I was a part of the Church of Nazarene, and I stayed in his house. So the guy I'm about to quote, I stayed in his house, and my claim to fame with uh, Dr. Tom Noble is I used all of his toilet paper and didn't replenish it. Like, I I feel terrible about that, but he's a great guy, and... um, this is what Thomas Noble writes, and this is another author from this book, Show Them No Mercy, quoting Tom Noble. He says, Thomas Noble rightly suggests that the starting point in forming a truly Christian theology is not what the Bible teaches about God in general, but what it re- about what Jesus reveals about God in particular. Theology is only truly theocentric, God-centric, if it is Christocentric, Christ-centric, Christ-centered. It is not, as Donald Bailey reminded us, theism with Christology tacked on, there is no knowledge of God except through the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. No knowledge of the Father except through the Son, so that our theology then must be Christo-normative. Even with the million-dollar theological words, he's just making a simple point. We read the Bible through the lens of Jesus. One author has said, and it's hard to attribute the quote, the scandal is not that Jesus is like God. The scandal is that God is like Jesus. So when you read passages in Deuteronomy and Joshua about God commanding warriors to thrust swords through the chests of infants because their parents have a different religion, what Tom Noble and so many others are saying is, we read that through the lens of Jesus. Would Jesus command that? Based on what you know about Jesus, would Jesus command the murder of infants because their parents are following a different religion? Or are we reading Middle Bronze Age literature and perhaps the people are struggling with what it means to follow God? And they're trying to make sense of whatever nudgings, ideas, pull, they feel in their culture, in their time, in their historical context, and they're doing their best, for us, it would be a massive step backward we would never take, we would, not, we would never defend genocide in Jesus' name, we're not going to do that, but for them, it's the record of their human wrestling in an area of, in a time of tribal warfare, and then over time, we're reading other voices in the Old Testament, like Amos and like Isaiah. So, no, you don't, you don't exterminate your neighbors. You, you do the right thing by them. You leave some of your crops out so they can eat too. And you welcome the foreigner and the stranger, and, and you, you offer them hospitality. And that's where Jesus gets these concepts of, as well. And so there's this idea of progressive revelation throughout Scripture, that somehow... If if the Spirit of God is communicating to human beings over time, we understand that better. And we have a fuller and fuller and clearer understanding of who God is and what it means to follow this God. And Christians would say that culminates in Jesus, who is God in the flesh and shows us what God is like. And so we read these passages through the lens of Jesus Christ. I want to close with a a four-minute video. This is Adam Hamilton. Uh, the author of uh, Making Sense of the Bible, talking about why he wrote the book and why he loves the Bible, why it's important to him. And as you watch, I just want you to think about all of the messages that we have in our culture, whether it's apathy or the Bible being used as a weapon or people who say all kinds of things about the Bible but they never read it. And and what about you? What is your view of the Bible? You know, your honest view. What do you really think about it? How do you feel about it? And is there, is there some... Uh, nudge that you feel to perhaps understanding the scripture a little bit better. Let's watch uh, Adam Hamilton talking about making sense of the Bible. So it's easy to see uh, why we have questions, why thinking people have questions. It's easy to see why uh, there would be um, a pushback to the statement that thinking compassionate people can take the Bible seriously if you felt the Bible being used as a weapon against you. But our hope is, in this series, as we you can purchase the book online, sign up for a group, as we move forward here in the series, that perhaps there is another way of viewing the Bible that's different than what we were given in the past, and that it really can be a guide for our lives, and we can love the Bible the way that Adam talks about loving the Bible, and really believe that thinking, compassionate people really can take the Bible seriously.